So today's reading comes from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 to 16. can be found on page 1197 of the Bibles in the pew. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of many hands. For the, spirit of, for the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of this testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you have heard from me keep is the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Well, hello, everyone. Hello, Scott. I'm going to pray for us all. I wasn't going to, but I think we need it. And uh, while I'm doing that, if you can get your Bibles, or keep them open at 2 Timothy, that would be super. Let's pray and we'll get underway. Heavenly Father, thank you for being just that, our Heavenly Father, who is neither absent nor uninterested in us. Uh, So we thank you for pursuing relationship with us and for speaking to us. And speak to us right now, we pray, through the words of this chapter that we might become more closely resembling the children you have called us and desire us to be. Amen. I think the second day was the worst. Um, Just flown over from Sydney to London to relocate and the second day was the worst. The day we flew out, of course, was exciting, tiring, but we eventually made our way um, from Heathrow Airport through London traffic to our hostel with 100 kilos of luggage and... The day after we arrived, we were still recovering and, you know, disoriented, but we're just buzzing with it all. But the second day after, which was a Saturday, was the worst. We're in this um, awful and awfully expensive 
hostel in central London that smelled of rank tobacco. The unvarnished chipboard wardrobes had obscenities drawn and scrawled all over it in nine different languages, none of them English. Just above the wash basin, somebody had written in very clear English, we in this basin, I did for a week. We had money saved, but you never know how quickly you're going to burn through it in an expensive place like London. So that night we brought a loaf of bread and some plastic cheese and we scraped on a bit of Vegemite that we brought from a home and through tears ate our Vegemite and cheese sandwiches for dinner right next to that wash basin. Second day was the worst. It hadn't turned out like we had thought it would. It wasn't what we were told or sold. It didn't feel like this at all. And I imagine you've had a, a similar or a corresponding experience. Maybe it was just a travel experience, but maybe it was something more um, kind of serious or important. Maybe family, maybe work. It's just a far cry from what you hoped it might be. And it might be very hard to deal with. And actually it makes a bad travel experiences seem pretty trivial. You would have had one of those experiences. What if the whole Christian faith was like that, though? You thought it was this glorious parade through life, towards resurrection, into perfection. Maybe that's what you'd even been sold or told. The Christian faith was all about your best life now. But it turns out your life's not glorious. And it's no grand parade. And right now you would welcome resurrection into perfection. But it seems like there's an awful lot to persevere through until then. Now, what if on top of that already difficult situation, you were the one person, humanly speaking, who was responsible for keeping the whole operation, the whole Christian faith thing alive. And in the back end of your life, after decades of a long slog proclaiming the good news, you found yourself in jail once again, isolated and marginalised. Because that's the scenario, the exact scenario the Apostle Paul faces in this little book of 2 Timothy. Or, Or Let's alternatively imagine that you had been recruited by the Apostle Paul, who was somewhat of a father figure to you, this great apostle to the Gentiles. You'd been appointed by him to oversee a church in Ephesus, which is a town known for its religious fervor, but also violence. And it wasn't going very well. So in yourself, you felt out of your depth and overwhelmed and timid. And your mentor, the one whose life you've modeled your own upon, is lonely, desperate, incarcerated. Because that's the exact scenario that Pastor Timothy faces in the book of 2 Timothy. Things just haven't gone to plan. They haven't gone, they haven't turned out as we thought it would or hoped it might. If it were a business, you'd be thinking about folding. But it's the spread of the gospel, it's the state of the church, it's the future of the Christian faith. Can you even think like that? It'd be so tempting to fold, to chuck it all in. Nathan Campbell is our great youth minister. He's preaching on this passage tonight. And during the week, he very perceptively said, you know, this book, 2 Timothy, it's like reading an email from one friend to another. A desperate email describing not just a desperate personal situation, but a desperate outlook for the future of the Christian faith. Can such an email, can such a correspondence say something to people like you and I in our situations? Or you and I, as we ponder the future of the Christian church and faith. 
Well, of course, I believe it can, otherwise I wouldn't be standing here. But before we launch into the details of today, let's have a little bit of a background to this uh, great letter that we begin today. Have a look in your Bibles, chapter 1, verse 1. It's from the Apostle Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles, and yet his circumstances are far from great. In all likelihood, he's in jail in Rome for a second time. Not the comparatively cruisy period of house arrest that we read about at the end of the book of Acts, where he seemed to have freedom to, to welcome guests into his rented apartment and freedom to proclaim the gospel to them. No, he is now in a dungeon under the streets of Rome. Looks a bit like my hostel in London. <laughs> Imprisoned under the unpredictable whims of Emperor Nero in the early 60s AD. And to Timothy is likely his last letter, his final words, as it were. And not long after this, he was beheaded and then buried outside of Rome. So it's a letter from that Paul. Have a look, chapter 1, verse 2, to Timothy, one of Paul's most trusted lieutenants, you see, he's called there in verse 2, my dear son, even though he's not biologically related to Paul, which is a good reminder to all of us that regardless of whether we have kids or not, we can be a spiritual father or mother to other people if we invest in their souls. My dear son. And Timothy appears as a co-author of no less than seven of Paul's New Testament letters. And from one Timothy, we know that Paul appointed Timothy to be pastor of the church in Ephesus. And man, that was never going to be an easy gig. Ephesus was a trade center. It was an administrative hub of the empire. It gave its allegiance either to the erotic religious cult of the goddess Diana or the political cult of the Roman emperor, um, that's Nero, the guy that's imprisoned, Paul. So Timothy faces the prospect of carrying the apostles' timeless message, eternal message, to a new generation just as the church has decided it didn't want it anymore, and just as the Roman state decided it was going to eliminate it. So on one hand, you've got the ageing pioneer, isolated, imprisoned, desperate in Rome, and you've got Timothy, isolated, intimidated, desperate in Ephesus. So many reasons to feel overwhelmed. So many temptations to just give it in or at the very least to feel ashamed of both the Apostle Paul and the gospel that he proclaims and represents. But today we're first going to see the Apostle Paul encourage Timothy to remain loyal to him and the gospel. In fact, loyalty to the gospel means loyalty to Paul. And the key verse for us today, which captures all of that up, is chapter 1, verse 8. So follow along in your Bibles with me. So... Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. It's a key verse, verse 8, and it's going to be very helpful in unpacking the whole chapter. And it's really about loyalty. It's about gospel loyalty, even though that's not immediately obvious. As I thought about loyalty, I, wonder, I wondered what things you feel loyal to or loyalty towards. I'm not like a completely um, one-eyed Australian digger. I don't have the Southern Cross tattooed on one of my calf muscles. Um, I, I don't even own a Wallabies jersey. I don't even own a scarf. It's 
terrible, I know. But I do love my country, and I wouldn't want to be any other nationality, although I'd like to be Japanese for a little bit, because they've got great food and they're lovely people. But generally speaking, subtle and strong loyalty to Australia. But here's the thing, loyalty can be tested, can't it? It can be tested by things like the Cronulla riots. It can be tested by just the general behaviour of Australians in Bali overall. It could be tested by our treatment of asylum seekers, things like that. I remember uh, once feeling really ashamed of being Australian when we went to the Davis Cup, you know, the tennis, the Davis Cup final. Um, we were living over in Europe. The final was between Australia and France in Nice, in the south of France. This was back in the day when we had some decent tennis players, or should I say some tennis players who were decent. Anyway, one of the best weekends of our life. I mean, how good is this? You do your sightseeing in the morning, you watch tennis in the afternoon, you go to great French restaurants for dinner. It's excellent. But how's this going to work out? You've got Australians, sporting events, overseas, alcohol. You know how that's going to end because it always ends the same. So on the flight back home to London, there were these Aussie fans and they were so drunk, you could smell them at some distance. And of course they were loud, but not in a good way at all, and they kept singing these loud, crude songs. And for some reason the flight attendant sat next to me and buckled up um, during takeoff. And I just remember turning to her and saying, I don't know what is going to happen on this flight, but if you need a police statement, you can come and see me. Is that ashamed to be Australian? Now we think the opposite of loyalty is betrayal, but sometimes the opposite is actually shame. And we think the opposite of shame is pride, but sometimes, kind of asymmetrically, the opposite of shame is loyalty. And our passage today is about loyalty, it's about gospel loyalty, and it's about loyalty that is being tested. And firstly, we see that loyalty to the gospel means loyalty to the Apostle Paul. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner says Paul. And uh, just try to put yourself in Timothy's shoes, or his sandals, whatever he wore, and you think, man, it could be easy to be ashamed of Paul. I mean, Timothy's way over in Ephesus with all the usual church tribulation. Uh, That's in a city that is dominated by a religion that involves sex as part of its worship, which is one way to keep religion popular, isn't it? And, And a political centre that's dominated by devotion to the very same Roman emperor that's imprisoned Paul. And it's especially easy to feel ashamed of Paul when his imprisonment is connected to the gospel and the gospel concerns a saviour who died on a criminal's cross. Like It's not a very long bow to draw to get why Timothy might feel sheepish about all that. And so Paul urges Timothy to not be ashamed of his imprisonment and to not be ashamed of Paul either. And to not desert him, have a look at verse 15. Like everybody in the province of Asia, that's modern-day Turkey. To not be like Phygelus or Hermogenes. Timothy, if you, got, you want to imitate anyone, be like my homie Anisiphorus, who, who searched for Paul's cell in Rome and brought much-needed friendship and supplies and encouragement. Let me tell you something, Timothy. In verse 16, he says, Anisiphorus, he wasn't ashamed of me and my chains. Have a look at verse 12. Timothy, I'm not ashamed of my chains. Don't you be ashamed of my chains. 
think even for us it's tempting, isn't it, to embrace Jesus, but really at the expense of Paul. So we just write off the Apostle Paul, at least the bits of his writings that we don't like, which is stupid because we wouldn't even know about Jesus without the Apostle Paul. But loyalty to the gospel meant loyalty to Paul. For Timothy, and I think also for us. But secondly, and more importantly today, loyalty to Paul means loyalty to the gospel. So the apostles appealed to Timothy to not be ashamed of him, to to not be ashamed of his imprisonment, is not just about their kind of warm relationship or because Paul was something like a father figure to Timothy. His appeal to remain loyal is based on their connection to the gospel. Look at verse 8 again. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as prisoner. Rather, join me in suffering for the gospel. Now, why would he do that? Why should he? In fact, Why should we not be ashamed of the testimony about Jesus, the good news of the gospel that centres on his life and death and resurrection? When the state of the church seems to be in decline, and we're likely to see that when the census results are revealed, when Christian faith is openly mocked in certain strands of our mainstream media, when there are militant groups that are agitating for scripture to be removed from school, even though it's optional... And let's be honest, much worse than all of the fact is that the majority of people see our message as just irrelevant rather than a threat. Why should we remain loyal to the gospel? Why should we not be ashamed of it? Why would we ever join in suffering for it? Some of us have even been sold a version of the Christian faith that's all about self-fulfillment. You know, God wants you to have your best life now and it's kind of moral therapy and suffering doesn't even enter the frame going to ask you to connect the dots jesus was born in a barn died on a cross the apostle paul imprisoned under rome beheaded by nero do you not think that as christians we will be required to suffer for the sake of the gospel of course we will you connect the dots and for that reason it's very important for us to know why we should endure it And so the Apostle Paul gives to Timothy and to us two reasons. The first is in verse 7. Read along with me. For that spirit that God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. You might have a natural predilection towards timidity and fear. And it sounds like Timothy had that. But the spirit of God who has taken up residence in our spirit, well, he makes up for that lack He is a spirit of power. And if you note the connection between power in verse 7 and verse 8, so have a look right now, you quickly realise it's not the power to be hostile. It's not the power to kind of, you know, stop speeding trains or anything stupid like that. It's not the power to be aggressive. It is the power to endure as a Christian, to remain loyal to Jesus and his message in spite of suffering and shame. We've been given a spirit who gives us power to endure We've been given a spirit who gives us love because with the Holy Spirit of God within us, we know that we are so loved, so affirmed, so secure in the embrace of God. I mean, he gave us his son as a sacrifice and then he's given us his spirit who lives within our spirits. What effect does that have upon us? 
Well, knowing that we are so secure in his love, his, in spirit, his spirit enables us to love others, including those who oppose us. So we've been given a spirit of power and a spirit of love, and we've been given a spirit of self-discipline or one who affords us self-control or sound judgment. And those kind of overlapping ideas are caught up in that word. And all of it's going to be very useful for Christians in first century Ephesus, 21st century Sydney, who find the world alluring or intimidating. You see, you're going to need self-discipline and sound judgment not to succumb to the alluring temptations of wealth or selfish individuality or illicit pleasures or even just perfectly legal life of comfort. And so we have a great spirit within us. It is the spirit of God himself who gives us power and love and self-discipline. And the second reason the Apostle Paul gives us for gospel loyalty rather than shame is found there in verses 9 and 10. So read along with me. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The second reason the Apostle Paul gives for gospel loyalty rather than gospel shame is nothing other than the gospel itself. Now, I, I just think you've got to stop for a minute and think about this. This great news that centers on the perfect life, the sacrificial death, and the triumphant resurrection of Jesus. Whenever you find your stomach tighten or your cheeks flush with color at the onset of embarrassment or shame because of Christ or even his messages, metaphorically, just, just stop for a minute and think about the gospel. We find out today, firstly, it's a message of salvation that is available to us on account of his grace rather than on account of our moral performance, our good reputation, our religious or community service. He saved us because he wanted to, not because of anything we have done. And it's a message that does not just provide us forgiveness of sins, but a message that motivates us and moves us towards holiness. That is a life that increasingly resembles the Lord Jesus Christ because his great spirit is at work in us, changing us from the inside out. So it's a message of salvation at the initiative of God that saves us and then transforms us into the likeness of Christ. Well, that is something, isn't it? Secondly, it is a message from eternity, an eternal message. Have a look in verse 9. It's a grace or a movement that began before time. It's something that Paul's ancestors in verse 3... Timothy's mum and grandma knew, although perhaps in a different guise. In other words, this Christian thing is not a new kind of flash in the pan religion that Paul's invented, that Timothy can just kind of flick. What Paul is saying is it's, it's an ancient thing, but it's now come to life with the historical appearance of Jesus, not just his incarnation when he took on human flesh and walked among us, but his resurrection appearance when he died on our behalf and then jubilantly rose again. Its origins are ancient, but it has come alive now that Jesus has come alive. 
And thirdly, it is a message that destroys death. Jesus, by his own resurrection from the dead, has destroyed death. He did not merely die to pay the penalty that our sins deserve, although that is extraordinary, but his resurrection is a conquering. It's a victory. It's a vanquish over sin and over death. And because of his resurrection from death, all who trust in him, all who trust in him, can look forward to sharing in that same victory and vanquish. Can look forward to rising again to eternal life in perfection. Now, I buried a young man this week. He was younger than me. Christian man who loved the Bible, though, uh, like all of us, had troubles. And uh, his father, brave Christian man, said he is actually with his father now in heaven. And he is. It's such great news. And if you have ever been touched by death, this is an extraordinary claim. That Jesus, by his own death, has destroyed it. And by his own resurrection from the dead, has brought immortality to life. So, when you feel your chest tighten, your cheeks flush red with embarrassment. If you can, step back for a minute and just remember the gospel. It is a message of salvation that both saves us and changes us. It is an eternal message that has sprung to life, just as Jesus has, and it means that death is destroyed, and those who are loyal to Christ will live forever. And that is why Paul, though he's in prison, can say to Timothy and to us, don't be ashamed of this thing. It is unlike any message you will ever hear. It centers on a person, unlike any other person who will ever live. And it does things for us, saves us, changes us, brings immortality to us that no other thing can. And so we've got to work out what it all means for us. What does it all mean? Well, for the Apostle Paul, I mean, you read verses 11 and 12. I think it means for him, he sees even in his dingy cell under the streets of Rome, it's an incredible honour to be appointed a herald, an apostle, a teacher of this gospel. So he refuses to be ashamed of it. And, and he knows Jesus and he knows that the emperor cannot take away from him his salvation nor the ministry that God has worked through him what might it mean for Timothy we'll have a look in verse 13 it means he's the next link in the chain of gospel transmission and I will hear more about this for sure next week but uh, Timothy is told to keep preaching the gospel soundly just as he heard Paul preach it soundly and though Timothy was undoubtedly tempted to shrink back from that task the apostle paul urges him to lean into it to lean into his gifting to teach it clearly i was thinking about it and and timothy is like the runner in the relay and of course the relay is the most exciting part of the games because of the unpredictability of the baton change that's it isn't it there's always a risk that someone will drop it and paul says timothy you can't drop this 
you, you can't drop the task of preaching the gospel as it's passed on from Paul to Timothy. And, and to swap metaphors, he's then told to guard the gospel by exposing it rather than hiding it, by proclaiming it, by declaring it in the hearing of others, by passing it along. And friends, all gospel ministers, this is the very least you should expect of them, of us. All gospel ministers are to keep this pattern of sound teaching by proclaiming, exposing, declaring it in the hearing of others, passing it along. You can expect nothing less from us. But what does it mean for us as a community of regular Christian folks? Do you know, I think it means that we ought to be captivated by this message that centers on the person of Jesus. Because in church life, there are all kinds of things that are ultimately peripheral if the gospel is not proclaimed. There are minor aspects of doctrine we could discuss and debate. There are styles of worship. There are endless opportunities for activity that at the end of the day are novelties. They're theatrics if they divert our attention and our captivation away from the gospel. You see, I wonder if you turn up to church next week and, um, and, and Pete Kerr is preaching on the gospel, whether you'll be tempted to think, ah, I've heard it all before. Or the week after when Dave preaches, yeah, I've heard this. Cannot let it take our captivation away. In our own hearts, you know, I think there's something that's not quite right when we are more passionate about European travel or Italian cooking or road cycling or minimalist design, they're kind of some of my passions, than we are about the gospel. Because as good as Euro travel and Italian food, I mean, more the eating than the cooking or road cycling or minimalism are, none of them can save us. And none of them can change us properly. And none of them can conquer death. None of them can bring immortality to life. Let me, let me put this another way. Uh, coming out of our vision that was launched last week, why would you give money to a church planter in Marsden Park in outer northwest Sydney, apart from the fact that it makes you feel less guilty because you don't have to be the poor guy that goes out there crossing all those bridges? Isn't it because there'll be millions of people in greater Western Sydney who need to hear the gospel? I mean, why would you pluck up the courage to read the Bible one-to-one -one, uh, over a coffee, even if it is a very easy system to use? Well, I presume because you love your friend enough to want them to hear the gospel from the book of John. Or uh, why would you be a small group leader? You know, you prepare your passage each week, you open your home each week. Sometimes your group doesn't come because they're feeling a bit tired and that's a bit discouraging. But I take it you do it because you know that a weekday refreshment in the gospel is just vital if you're going to get through the rest of your week as a Christian. Why would one of our 20-somethings, like Emily was talking about, do an internship here? And why would they possibly divert their career at some later stage to pursue full-time paid Christian ministry? One of our best and brightest, why would they do that? Only because they hear within Timothy's, I mean, Paul's charge to Timothy to pass on the gospel, an ongoing charge to them to pass it on, to keep the pattern of sound teaching, to guard the good deposit 
and in so doing to give the next generation a chance to cheat death and embrace immortality. As we finish, brothers and sisters, there'll be times to come where we are required to suffer for the gospel. That is nothing new. There are times coming where we will be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. And that is nothing new. And right now there are all sorts of things in the world outside and the world within us that either captivate us or intimidate us. And that's just a given of the Christian life. But there is this beautiful, wonderful message that is called the gospel. It's all about Jesus and it does things to us and it does things for us that nothing else can. Nothing else can. Saves us, changes us, brings life to light forever. And today we're just being asked not to be ashamed of that gospel. To suffer probably just some social embarrassment on behalf of that gospel and to be loyal to it. But I can guarantee you, just as Paul guaranteed Timothy, that despite appearances, man, it is no cause for shame, and that our loyalty to it and to the Lord Jesus and our Heavenly Father and maybe even to the Apostle Paul will not be misplaced. Join with me now. I'm going to pray that we would actually be courageous enough to do that, to not be ashamed and perhaps to even suffer for it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we do thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your Son, to whom it testifies. Forgive us for times where we've felt embarrassed or ashamed of it, or when we've been otherwise allured by the world rather than captivated by the message of your Son. I ask that you would help us to be loyal to it, to not be ashamed of it, and to join in all Christians who must suffer for it, that we might be increasingly like the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.